the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Again, we're deviating a little bit from our regular show because this is Veterans Day weekend. And for Veterans Day, we're, we're going to have a, a special show. We're going to talk about mostly Hall of Famers who play, who were in the military during time of war, baseball Hall of Famers, because I'm a big baseball fan and I'm a big history fan. And I, the history of baseball to me is, is incredibly interesting. I know stats got a little messed up with the steroids and the different eras and things like that. But still, I, I think baseball history is a fascinating subject. And to talk about some of the personalities that were part of baseball. And, you know, I was surprised a little while ago when I read that there were 70 Major League Hall of Famers who served in the U.S. military. And my first reaction was that, hey, that's wrong. That's way too many. But then when you do a little bit and you looked at the list, you realize that there's some umpires that are in the Hall of Fame. There's some baseball executives like Branch Rickey was a veteran and he's in the Hall of Fame. And of course, there were some Negro League players that were in the Hall of Fame, which, you know, in traditional baseball, you don't think of them necessarily as the Hall of Famers, even though they, they fully deserve to be in there. I, I would say probably every you know, Negro League Hall of Famer certainly belongs in there. So the, the numbers are a little bit different. But one guy I want to talk about who, his playing career, he was not a Hall of Famer. But I think in some respects maybe he should be, not because of what he did on the baseball diamond, but what he did as a human being. Eddie Grant. Eddie Grant was more of a utility ball player. He started a few years, a utility infielder. Stole a lot of bases, had good speed, only hit 249 lifetime, and played for the Cincinnati Reds and the New York Giants and the Cleveland Indians. Or the, and, you know, again, a utility ball player. He's a Harvard graduate, though. And after the war, or after the, his playing career was over, he joined, he's one of the first volunteers to join 
the U.S. Army. He was a captain. He, again, he was a Harvard graduate. He was 36 years of age when he volunteered. And I don't know what the draft rules were back then, but I'm sure he did not have to volunteer at the age of 36. He was a practicing lawyer. He was on a mission. You know, there was an exploding shell. He was killed. And... You know, there were other marginal Major League Baseball players who were killed in World War One. I. I don't think any were killed in World War II. Um, but there were other marginal Major League Baseball players. But Eddie Grant was a Harvard graduate, a lawyer, played seven or eight years in, in the Major Leagues. Again, as a utility ball player, but still even playing in the Major Leagues. There was tremendous competition to play in the Major Leagues back then. For every Major League ball player, there were about 25 minor leaguers who were trying to get to the Major Leagues then. And again, that the man, you know, Harvard graduate practicing law, I'm sure he could have had a very comfortable life. And he decided to enlist in the service of his country. It cost him his life. And I really do think that deserves more credit than he's received over the years. So we're going to start talking about Eddie Grant. And, uh, you know, another veteran that was on our show was Dr. Bobby Grant Brown, who was in World War II as a medic, spent about seven years playing for the Yankees, was in Korea as a medical doctor, and then after his baseball career ended and he voluntarily retired, he became a cardiologist, then served as a cardiologist for many, many years. Then when he could no longer operate, which happens when you're that type of doctor, you can't go forever because your, you know, vision or whatever sometimes gets slightly impaired and you can't operate anymore. Then he went back to baseball, became eventually president of the American League. And he just passed away not that long ago. And he lived well into his 90s. And again, another great, you know, American, not a Hall of Fame ball player, a little bit more than a utility ball player, but he was a good ball player. But it wasn't so much he was a good ball player. He had a great life. A great. He's and, been on the show, and it yeah. was just it was easy. And he's very, contributed an awful lot, you know, to to this country, to baseball, and I'm sure to his community. Now, when we're going through all the the Hall of Fame veterans, one of the one of the guys that I didn't realize who was a Hall of Fame was Morgan Buckley, who was the only Civil War veteran who's in the uh, the Hall of Fame. And he was an officer from Connecticut during the Civil War. And after the war, he was prominent in politics. And he became president of the National League, you know, in the 1870s. And as one of those, you know, one of those men who do really work toward the organization of baseball as we know it today. National League, same National League that we have today, you know, 160 years later. Morgan Buckley was one of the founding members of. So, again, baseball executive, Civil War veteran, and the only Civil War veteran that's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Of course, if you think about it, the Civil War ended in 1865. The National League didn't start officially till 1876. So it'd be very hard for a Civil War player to be playing in the in the major leagues, you know, it, it'd be almost impossible because players didn't play until their forties back then, at least not too many of them. All right, now there were a lot more World War One 
veterans that I realized too. And of course, I, I remember uh, when I was a kid, and it still plays today, was a biography of Grover Cleveland Alexander, played by Ronald Reagan. And of course, in that movie, they say that Grover Cleveland Alexander, he had some injuries from his time in the artillery in, in World War One, and that hampered his life and part of the problems he, he had, you know, drinking problems and things like that. And of course, the, the movie wasn't real close tight on history, but that's Hollywood. That's back not unusual with Hollywood. But it did have it did have, have him striking out Tony Lazari in the 1926 World Series to win the, the series for the uh, he played for St. Louis Cardinals. Um, and it was an interesting show. Ronald Reagan, Doris Day played his wife. But the winning team was the name of the movie. But Grover Cleveland Alexander, again, he was a star pitcher, and I'm sure he could have gotten out of it if he wanted to. And he ended up being, you know, combat veteran. And there are a lot of other guys, you know, guys that, you know, is a Hall of Fame players, Eddie Collins, Red Faber, Burley Grimes, Harry Heilman, Wade Hoyt, George Kelly, Rabbit Moranville, Rube McQuard, Christy Masterson. Christy Masterson was a great pitcher for the Giants, you know, who won as many games as Grover Cleveland Alexander and both elected to the Hall of Fame. At the time they retired, they were number three and four behind Cy Young and Walter Johnson. Um, well, they probably ahead of Walter Johnson when they retired, so they're probably two and three. Herb Pennock, great pitcher for the Yankees. Sam Rice, outfielder for the uh, Washington Senators. And, you know, here's one of the things that, like, was a little strange. Sam Rice retired with 2,997 hits. Now, in today's numbers and statistics, why? And he hit over 300 his last year in the ball, in the, in the big leagues. So why would a guy retire only three hits short of, of 3,000 hits? Well, I, I read an article once by Bill James that suggested because Statistics weren't as important back then because there was no Hall of Fame yet. And it wasn't until the Hall of Fame came a few years later that statistics seemed to be important. Like, what difference does it make whether you had 2,997 hits or 3,000 hits? So I, I think that's just a antidote. Branch Rickey, I didn't realize, served in, in the Army. So the guy who signed Jackie Robinson was general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was in, in World War I. Epirixi, left-handed pitcher. Won a lot of games. Some Negro League players, Bullet Rogan, who was a great pitcher and an outfielder, a fairly good hitting outfielder. Luis Santos, Joe Sewell. Joe Sewell was one of the guys who never struck out. I think one time he had about 600 at-bats and he struck out four times. 300 hitter who played shortstop and third base. George Sisler. Um... First baseman who hit for very good average, very good speed. Again, World War One veteran, Tris Speaker. You know, at the at the time, he was probably considered the second best ball player to Ty Cobb in the American League back in, in those days. Great center fielder. And here's one of the names you didn't think about, Casey Stengel. Now, Casey Stengel says was in the Navy, according to the sheet. I always thought he worked for the Navy Yard, but maybe he was officially in the service at that time. So, you know, another part of the... The legend. And, of course, Judd Wilson. Judd Wilson was a Negro League player, very good hitter, and deservedly in the, the Hall of Fame. 
So then we get into the World War II guys. And the top of the list, we're going alphabetically, Luke Appling. Luke Appling was a, a great shortstop for the Chicago White Sox, played in a lot of games, and I don't I don't have a statistical encyclopedia from me, but played in a lot of games, hit three ten, and was a solid shortstop for, for twenty years, and he lost time in his career, you know, because of World War II. And I, I'm gonna mention another ball player who's not in the Hall of Fame, but maybe who should be. Cecil Travis. Cecil Travis was a shortstop, the same contemporary, let's say, of Luke Appling. And Cecil Travis hit about 313 lifetime. But the thing is, Cecil Travis lost three full years to World War II. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he had some trench foot or whatever. He was injured in the, in the Battle of the Bulge. And when he came back after the war, he really wasn't the player he was before the war. And it wasn't just age, and his career was shortened. And, and, and I think, you know, a ball player whose career is cut short by World War II, he he was a, a again, he had a better average. And, of course, back then, average was the most important statistic. But he had a better average than Luke Appling. They were contemporaries. They played in the same league. And he hit three fifty nine the year before he went into the service. So he probably would have had a higher batting average if World War II didn't interrupt his career. And again, a lot of these guys, they could have gotten exemptions out. So, you know, Cecil Travis, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but maybe he could make an argument that he should be. Of course, there's Yogi Berra. And, of course, Yogi Berra was, uh, I believe, a, a combat veteran. And, you know, uh, I, again, you don't even think of that. Now, he was a combat veteran before he entered the service. So he came out and he made the major leagues a couple of years after that. Um, some of the other names, we got another two catchers, Mickey Cochran, Bill Dickey. Bill Dickey was, in effect, Yogi Berra's predecessor on the Yankees. So he was in the major leagues. Joe DiMaggio, who you know, a lot of people thought was the greatest player who ever lived when shortly after he retired, although some people doing the stats right now would probably put him you know, a little bit lower on that list. In fact, but I he think, was still good. We're not going to. Yeah, baseball yeah. reference, I think, Adam is, you know, the sixth or seventh best center fielder of all time. So, um, and that's what makes baseball great. You can argue everything. <laughs> and one of the ball players we should have talked about is Oscar Charleston, who was, some people say, was the greatest center fielder of all time, played the entirety of his career in the Negro Leagues, never got to play in the major leagues. And some people, obviously, um, we didn't see him play or whatever, but he, he was in the, in the service, and he was a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I don't think anybody argues that. Go ahead. Yeah, can you could you tell us just a little bit about the Negro League? I mean, how long did it last? Well, it's it's there from the teens <coughs> until the 1940s. Uh, Jackie Robinson broke the color line in '47. The Negro Leagues went on for a few years after that. Okay. Um, you know, but gradually, once Jackie Robinson got into the major leagues, the you know Negro Leagues kind of folded once major league teams started 
signed the Negro League players. Gotcha. It's kind of a tragedy because, I, you know, I'm sure some people probably don't know this. There was a color barrier that was put into the, you know, major leagues. I believe in the 1880s, there was a, there were a number of African-American players who played in organized baseball at that time period back then in, in the 1880s. But Cap Anson, who was the first baseman for the uh, Chicago White Stockings at the time, was a very powerful force in, in baseball. And he was certainly the greatest first baseman of his time. And he adamantly refused to play against African-American players or any players. And, you know, sometimes there were there's some very borderline players. There were some Cuban-Americans. Some Cubans were allowed to play in Major League Baseball. Some weren't. And depending on the pigmentation of their color, there you know, were guys like you know Native Americans. There were more than a few Native Americans that played in the Major Leagues. The Hall of Famer, uh, Chief Bender, was a Hall of Famer who did play in the Major Leagues. Jim Thorpe, certainly not a major, not a Hall of Fame player, but he played in the in the major leagues with the New York Giants, and so forth and so on. Roy Campanella did play in the Negro Leagues. You mentioned that, mm-hmm. um, and and a lot of guys, even Willie Mays and Ernie Banks, and some of those guys played in the Negro Leagues for a year or two before being signed to major league teams, and. And there was no written rule on that. Nothing technically stopped a team in the 1930s, let's say, if they wanted to, to go out and sign Negro League players like Satchel Paige or Josh Gibson, who were great ball players. And I don't think there would have been any argument. The problem would be traveling around the country and having some people pitch a fit. You know, where do they stay? They wouldn't be, you know, certainly... In the old South, you couldn't have, they wouldn't be able to stay in the same hotel, you know? Yeah, of course, in the major leagues wasn't in the old South back then. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, St. Louis was probably the most Southern team. Well, you had Washington, D.C. Right. And Washington, D.C. and St. Louis, you know, remember the, the American League National League did start in the 1870s into the 1900s. So it's mostly teams from the Northeast. Okay. Now, is this the, the Texas Western teams with Detroit, League. Chicago? Okay. So what do you have? The Texas, what are they? And then the, the Pacific Coast? I mean, was that yeah, different? Yeah, Pacific Coast League was a minor league, although in, in the 1920s, the Pacific Coast League was very, very, very close to Major League play. There were a lot of retired, major not retired, but there were a lot of Major League players who chose to play out their careers there. And some of them had some great statistics out there. Um, it, it wasn't quite major league play, but there were some Pacific Coast ball players who made more money playing the Pacific Coast than, let's say, a marginal or you know a reserve like Casey Stengel. I think said he made less money than Buzz Orlatt, who was a star player in the Pacific Coast League when Casey Stengel was at the, at the end of his career was a third, fourth outfielder the New York Giants. When, and this is just my stupidity, when did it actually become a national game? Well, I'd have to say it It was always a national game. There was the Pacific Coast League. There was No, the but Southern I mean, when League, they're all the part League. of, like the Pacific Coast, 
Coast League, do they are there stats in the Hall of Fame or not? No, because they weren't major leagues. But that's what I'm saying. When did the major leagues go? Well, national? I guess when the Dodgers and the Giants went to California. Oh my goodness! It was that late. Fifty-eight. Yeah. There were no need teams in, in the West Coast. I don't think west of St. Louis, west of Chicago, there were no major league teams until that. West of, west of Chicago. West I had of no Louis. idea. It was that late. Okay. You know, yeah, the Pacific Coast League was a very, and of course that's one of the reasons like the Pacific Coast League was close to being a major league because ball players would, let's say their major league career was over, a lot of them would play in the Pacific Coast League and you know, get fairly good salaries for playing baseball. And, of course, the weather's usually a little bit better in most of the Pacific Coast League cities. So they used to play a longer season, too. I mean, we had one, one time we had on our show Lefty O'Doul. Uh, I, we didn't have Lefty O'Doul on our show, but a program about Lefty O'Doul, who was a great hitter, hit three forty nine in the major leagues, but then went on to uh, manage and play for the uh, San Francisco Seals out in the Pacific Coast League and had years where he hit three hundred as a, player in the Pacific Coast League. His lifetime batting average in the major leagues was 349. And then after Lefty O'Doul, he also basically started baseball in Japan. And I think after the war... When was that? that? In the 1930s. Oh, gosh. And after the war, I think he helped start the Japanese baseball leagues. I think MacArthur asked him to do that. Okay. Kind of like to good public relations between the, the United right. States and the right. defeated uh, government of Japan. So... Let's go through some of the other names. Larry Doby was in the Navy. Bobby Doerr was in the Army. Two American leaguers. Larry Doby was the first African-American player in the American League. You know, he was a little bit behind Jackie Robinson. And he was, he's almost forgotten now, but he, he should be remembered. He's a very good ball player, but again, he was one of the first, he was the first American League African-American ball player. And, you know, and he was a first. He was one of the first African American managers, and had a good, solid career. And again, you know, his career would have been a little bit longer if he played, if he was allowed to play in the major leagues as soon as he was eligible. So, and and, and that's another thing. Some of these guys, the career was shortened by a couple of different things, like Jackie Robinson was in the service during World War II, and and then of course he wasn't allowed to play in the major leagues till 1947. He was the the groundbreaker, but. Again, some of these players, their career was shortened for two or three events. It's not just, you know, World War II, but it was also, you know, the Negro Leagues, they couldn't play in the, in the major leagues. Some more American leaguers, Bobby Feller, he, I think he spent four full years in the Navy in World War II and still ended up winning 266 major league games. And that's what missing four years to World War II. Charlie Geringer. <clears throat> He was toward the end of his career, but still a great second baseman for the Detroit Tigers. Joe Gordon, he was in the Army, and he was a second baseman for the Yankees and later the Cleveland Indians. And he played on the Cleveland Indians in their 1948 uh, World Series team. So, you know, good power hitting second baseman. Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg lost a lot of time to World War II, and... I think he, he ended up hitting about 331 home runs, and he hit 313. But, he uh, no, you know, like today, you know, if they had these OPS statistics and things like that, he would be way up there because he hit a lot of doubles. 
and walked a lot, good on base percentage or whatever. Career shortened, still, he's one of those guys whose career was shortened, but still had enough recognition to be elected into the Hall of Fame, even with his career shortened. But he was in the service, I think, four full years. Uh, Billy Herman, <coughs> his career was probably pretty close to being over when he did join the service, but he was in the Navy. Gil Hodges, of course, and of course Gil Hodges is one of our Brooklyn heroes. He was in Okinawa, combat veteran, Bronze Star winner. And I think that's one of the reasons when, when, when we have these debates about the Hall of Fame, you got to take everything into account. And that's Character. what the Hall of Fame, you know, that's what the Hall of Fame prologue says. It's not just based on your playing record. And he was a World War II combat veteran. He had one of the greatest managerial accomplishments in baseball history by winning the World Series with the New York Mets. Who never, with the Mets. Who never had a winning season before <laughs> he took over. Um, so, I mean, that's a, and everybody who played for him respected him, thought he was a great man. And thank God, eventually he ended up in the in the Hall of Fame. Monty Irwin, another um, Negro League player who half, spent half his career in the Negro Leagues, half his career in the in the major leagues. And Monty Irwin was one of my father's favorite ball players. He was a giant fan. Ralph Kiner um, led the league in home runs seven straight years. Ralph Kiner was in the Navy. Now, he didn't interrupt his career. His career was delayed because he spent three years in the Navy. You know, so in other words, he was in the minor leagues. His minor league career was interrupted, which, of course, meant that he... But he still lost the three years of playing right, for statistics. Right. Yeah. So he might have had some more good years in there. Bob Lemon, Navy veteran, good-hitting pitcher, Ted Lyons... Again, that probably, he went into the service probably after his career was over. Um, Larry McPhail, Lee McPhail, they were in the service. They were baseball executives. Johnny Mize, he lost three full years, and he had 360 home runs right in the prime of his career. So he probably would have hit very close to 500 home runs if, you know, he didn't lose those three years in the heart of his career. He was hitting 40 home runs a year roughly then. Tied Ralph Kiner twice for the league in, in home runs in the National League. Uh, of course, everybody knows Stan Musial. I think he didn't lose a lot of time one year. Buck O'Neill, Negro League player, Pee Wee Reese. Everybody remembers Pee Wee Reese in Brooklyn. Pee Wee Reese was... Great shortstop for the Dodgers, played his entire career with the Dodgers. And, you know, from pre-World War II, he was part of the team that won the 1941 pennant. And, of course, he was there in 1955 when the Dodgers finally won their world championship. Phil Rizzuto, Yankees, Navy. I think he won Rookie of the Year in 1941. It wasn't quite the same award, but he was Rookie of the Year, you know, by some different type of voting systems, and then went in, off into the Navy. Robin Roberts, Army, that's probably before his career really got started, played some years in the, you know, before his career started, but again, won a lot of games over his career. For Philadelphia Phillies, who for the most part <coughs> were not a winning team. You know, they did win in 1950, but he played for second division teams, won a lot of games, lost a lot of games, 
because of the Phillies' record, but that's the way it was. Jackie Robinson, we talked about. Red Ruffing, Boston and Yankees. Red Shendings later you know, became manager of the Cardinals, which is one of the reasons I think he's in the Hall of Fame. Enos Slaughter, another one of those Cardinals for that time period, was in the Army. Duke Snyder was in the Navy. Again, Duke Snyder, his naval career was before his major league career. But again, these guys probably lost time so that they didn't have as long a major league career as they would have had if there was no World War II. And I think we have to take that into account when we're talking about their careers. Warren Spahn. Warren Spahn, remember Faye Vincent told the story, but Beth and I, you and I were looking at the uh, documentary about the Battle of Remagen, or the right, Remagen Bridge, right. Ludendorff Bridge, I guess. What a mess. Yeah, but Warren Spahn was one of the troops at the Remagen Bridge, and he was was working on the bridge, and there was machine gun fire that rattled just above him. So Warren Spahn, he ended up winning 366 games. He didn't win a single game before World War II. He won them all after, and at the age of 25, he won his first game. And the story about that that uh, Faye Vincent told us, that in 1941 or two, Casey Stengel was the manager of the Boston Braves, and Casey Stengel told Warren Spahn to knock down a player. Warren Spahn didn't, so he said, okay, I'm sending you to Hartford till you grow up. That Casey Stengel. And I don't know if you guys remember, but when we talked to Roger Craig, Roger Craig said the same thing, that Casey Stengel told him to knock down some of those giants because they were getting too comfortable hitting Met pitching, which was hard not to get comfortable (laughs) hitting Met pitching back in those days, since Roger Craig was one of the few legitimate major league pitchers on the team. Um, So he said, Mr. Craig... So Roger Craig followed what he did. But was that uh, some line that people had to get over for Casey? Yeah. He was rough. Well, he was from rough and tumble years early yeah. on. Well, baseball was, you know, there's always a story that baseball keeps getting tougher every generation. There's, uh, again, going back to Bill James and his baseball, um, what, what would he call it? his baseball almanac or whatever. He was always, he had a, a series, old ball players never die. And every ball player says that it was a lot harder when he was playing. So you have guys <laughs> from the 1880s saying that the ball players in the 1890s have it easy. You have guys from the 1890s saying the ball players in the early 1900s were having it easy. So forth down the line, you know, and even today you hear Keith Hernandez once in a while on TV talking about how <laughs> yes. much tougher it was when he was playing than the ball players today. So it's all ball players never die, and it was always tougher when they were playing. But in any event, it probably was a lot tougher when Casey Stengel was playing, you know, in the major leagues. And Casey Stengel was a, a pretty good baseball player. He wasn't a Hall of Fame ball player. He was a good ball player. He was one of those guys who might be second or third in the team in RBIs. Um, he wasn't a star, but he was a good, solid ball player. And he played, you know, he's, he, I think he hit the first home run in Yankee Stadium in the World Series for the New York Giants. And it was an inside-the-park home run. And he had on some shoe supports or whatever. And as he was rounding second base going toward third, one of those shoe supports fell out of his shoe. But obviously he kept on going. And 
you know, scores, you know, he's a veteran, an older player at the time, and really pushing it, you know, scored on the inside the park home run, which Yankee Stadium was a big ballpark, plus outfields used to play more shallow back in those days because there weren't as many home runs and deep fly balls. And when he came across the plate, um, he, he told the on-deck hitter, Hank Gowdy, I, I think I lost a shoe on the base pass. And Hank Gowdy says, well, how many shoes did you have on? Because <laughs> you got two on your feet now. <laughs> but that was Casey Stengel. Bill Veck, great owner of the, you know, interesting owner of the, he was a guy who, Signed Larry Doby to his contract, and also signed Satchel Page to a contract. And Hoyt Wilhelm, Giants, first started with the Giants, pitched in the major leagues for 20 years. And he came up when he was about 30 years old, and I'm sure part of that has to do with the fact that he was in the uh, in the service, well, there, in the Army. Wait, is this the Hoyt that got... Hoyt? No, that's or Wade Hoyt. That's the from the First World War? Yeah. yeah okay. It's Wade okay. Hoyt. Um, early win. Again, pitched forever in the major leagues. And he won 300 games, and he lost a couple of years to the service. So even then, he still won 300 games. At the time he retired, he thought he'd be the last player to win 300 games. But the game has changed a little bit, and players have been living longer. But I, I would dare say... <laughs> We're never going to see a 300-game winner again because nobody wins 20 games a season. You know, so, yes, he wasn't the last, but he may not have been that far behind. Why do people have so much arm trouble now when they're not pitching as often? Well, I think there are a couple of things about it, and it's hard to say. But there were always pitchers. If you look back at baseball history and you looked about the, the 10 best pitchers in any category, there was always a fair amount of pitchers that, you know, threw out their arms and their career was over. Today they have surgery and they come back a couple of years later. But I think also today it's the general idea is you throw as hard as you can, as long as you can, and the body's just not made okay. for that. I think that's part of it. Plus, I think uh, a couple of major league players that we've talked about, these guys are so wound up and so well-conditioned that one little thing, their muscles are so wound up, one little thing, and they snap. Yeah. So then, you know, more, because, you know, the 69 Mets, uh, the 69 Mets only had like a couple of minor injuries during the whole year. You know, I think Art Shamsky was on the disabled list two weeks for a bad back. Right. Jerry Kusman was on a couple of weeks for a sore shoulder, but... That whole roster, there were very, very, very few injuries. Nobody was out for the year. Nobody right. was out for two months. <coughs> Just minor aches and pains. And, of course, Gil Hodges was a master at resting ball players too. You know, he kept all 25 players on his roster involved. And he, was again, was a master at that. And more than a few people said that if Leo DeRocher managed the Mets and Gil Hodges managed the Cubs – the Cubs would have been in the World Series in 1969 instead of Interesting. the Mets because... DeRocher pushed him? Yeah, he pushed okay. him too hard, maybe. Ted Williams. Now, he deserves special credit because, one, he is without question one of the most legitimate Hall of Fame players 
in the history of baseball, maybe the greatest hitter in the history of baseball. And he was one of the few players and the only player in the Hall of Fame who played, who played, who fought in both World War II, and he was a combat Marine pilot in both World War II and Korea. And he lost nearly five years. And the guy ended up hitting 29 home runs in his last year in 1960. So if <coughs> he might have easily come close to breaking Babe Ruth's record at the time if he didn't lose those five years. And, of course, he could have kept playing if he wanted to. I guess he didn't want it. He retired on top. He had 29 home runs. I think he batted 320-something in his last year in his 40s. And, did, but he, did he try to manage later? or He did try to manage. wasn't overly successful. Right. Okay. Washington Centers, Texas Rangers. Okay. Um, and, of course, that supposedly that was one of the reasons he voted against uh, Gil Hodges going into the Hall of Fame because there was a little bit of jealousy. Oh, okay. Gil Hodges was the manager of the Washington Senators before he moved to the Mets. And Ted Williams took over, and Ted Williams wasn't as popular as Gil Hodges, and there was a little bit of resentment okay. toward that. So I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but Ted Williams deserved a special place, both in the Hall of Fame and American history. You know, a fighter pilot, combat, World War II, Korea. And there are not many people that, you know, were in both wars. We talked about Bobby Brown. Right. Now, Korean War, there's some names here that were on active duty service. I don't think any of them besides Ted Williams were in combat. But, you know, Willie Mays, and, and people forget this, he helped the Giants win the World <coughs> Series in 1951. In fact, he was on deck when Bobby Thompson hit his home run to win the playoff game. The Giants win the pennant. He was on deck. He was the next batter up. Um, but he helped the Giants win the World Series in 1951. He lost most of 52 and all of 53 to his service time. And, you know, you didn't hear players complain about that. You know, I think a lot of, because again, if he didn't lose those two years, he might have been very close to Babe Ruth's record at the end of his career, which, of course, he played with the Mets. Eddie Matthews, and I didn't know this, but Eddie Matthews was in the Navy during World War II. Whitey Herzog, the manager for the Cardinals for, you know, years and years, was in the Army. Whitey Ford, we remember that, and he lost two years at the beginning of his career. And he won a lot of games anyway in his legitimate Hall of Famer, even though he, some people say, well, he pitched from some great Yankee teams, and maybe he wasn't as great as some people say. But in any event, he still won a lot of games. And I, I, that's one statistic I want. People don't win games anymore. It doesn't matter. You have your war. You know, oh, right. You know, so you, you win 10 games like Jacob deGrom. You win 10 games and you win a Cy Young Award, which I don't no. quite understand. Although I admire, Cobb. I admire, you know, Jacob deGrom. And Ernie Banks was in the Army during the Korean War. So, you know, there's some very legitimate Hall of Famers in that group. Eddie, Ernie Banks, Whitey Ford, Whitey Herzog. Eddie Matthews, Willie Mays, Ted Williams. That could get you that could get you a lot of votes right there. Absolutely. You know, and you know, we didn't talk about too much. Again, we mentioned some of them, but again, the there there's some umpires in the Hall of Fame. Jocko Collin, which I remember him umpiring, you know, in the sixties. 
you know, he was in the Hall of Fame. Al Barlick was in the Hall of Fame. So that's why sometimes when I heard that there were 70, you know, and I, I think it's misnumbered, 70 players, there's 70 members of the Hall of Fame who wore the uniform of the United States, including some umpires like Al Barlick and Jock O'Conlon. We talked about some of the executives, Morgan Buckley, during the um, Civil War. Branch Rickey, the guy who signed Jackie Robinson to his first major league contract. He was, you know, he was in the service. And obviously from going through some of these names, I think there was a greater sense of patriotism back then. I can't even imagine. I mean, I mean, I know there was Guy Tillman in the NFL, NFL yeah. that, that volunteered. But we, we must have had a, mu a much greater sense of patriotism. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I don't think there's any. Because I don't think, yeah. you know, like Ted Williams... I'm sure he could have gotten out of his second tour in Korea, and I know he wasn't crazy about being called up again. He did his job. But I'm sure if he could have gotten out of it if he really wanted to. But these guys had a greater sense uh, of patriotism and service. And, you know, and, and the thing is, a lot of these guys like Warren Spahn and Gil Hodges and Cecil Travis were combat veterans. They just didn't play baseball you know, for the service. Some of these guys did. Bob Feller was a Navy veteran. Some of these guys did. You know, maybe we should have a show someday, Michael, on the uh, Hollywood stars. That would be Who's good. There? Yeah, maybe next we year's Veterans Day. List. Yeah, we got to put a list together. But, you know, guys like Clark Gable. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, Tyrone Power. Um, you know, I'm trying, and I don't, I can't think of any stars who, you know, lost any time in their careers to the, you know, to the service in Korea or Vietnam. So, yeah. Of course, I remember we heard Rocky Blyer speak a couple of years ago, NFL football player who lost some years of service to the Vietnam War and got seriously injured during the Vietnam War. But, again, we live in different times. I'll tell you what, we're going to take a short break and wrap up the show in a few minutes. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots. So, St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. 
How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, still accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. So... You know, we're on Veterans Day weekend, and of course, Veterans Day was supposed to honor the, the living veterans. We talked about most most of these guys we talked about have passed away, but I think, still think it's appropriate for Veterans Day. Oh, right. And, you know, Memorial Day was supposed to remember our honored dead. Veterans Day was supposed to remember or thank our veterans who, you know, have served, you know, in, in the armed forces of the United States. And... You know, let's, World War II veterans are practically all gone, and that saddens me when I think about it because, you know, you talk about the greatest generation, and they really were. Now, next week we're going to have another special show on. We're going to be saluting a, a, another veteran, a veteran of the Korean War, who's the only guy I know who's both in the Marine Corps and the United States Army, and, uh, you know, a veteran of the Korean War, Surf Maltese, Surf Maltese. He was state senator for 20 years from Queens. He was chairman of the Conservative Party of New York State. He's been, I'm not sure what the title is, whether he's chairman of the board of Christ the King High School forever, forever being, you know, he saved it. He saved the school. Yeah. And, you know, one of the founding members of the Conservative Party. So I don't know how much more you can accomplish in your life you know, than that, but, and I, you know, so next week we're going to have a special show with Surf Maltese talking about his life. And the reason it came up is that a a couple of weeks ago, Surf Maltese was honored at the Conservative Party in Kings County, Brooklyn, which, you know, one thing I I, I noticed about the Conservative Party, it always was made up, a, a large percentage of the people that made up the Conservative Party have been immigrants or the children of immigrants. Absolutely. And that is continuing now, even though the immigrants are from different countries. Yeah. Um, and my father switched over from Democrat to conservative fairly, you know, I wouldn't say early, but early in the, the history of the Democratic Party. Originally, I enrolled as a Republican because some of my friends in college and whatever were part of the young Republicans. So, and, and there was infighting in the Republican Party at the time between the, quote, the Rockefeller Republicans and the conservative Republicans. So because of some of my friends who were involved in that infighting, I became a Republican, but then switched to the conservative party after I got out of the army in 1975. But I have a lot of respect for the conservative party. And again, they are the voice for a lot of immigrants today. You go to a conservative party dinner, 
There are a lot of people there born in, in other countries. Countries all around the world. Yes. And, you know, they're the voice of the new Americans. Well, they, you know, they believe in the original ideas of the United States. You come here because you want to be free. And that's a... Not everybody believes that these days. That's what's so sad. Well, in any event, we'll see you next week at the same time and places where we'll be talking to Cirque Maltese. He's 90 years old now, reflecting on his life well lived. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Records. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.